I am Solas Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on October 2nd, 2023. Episode 112. Let's talk term limits. When the framers drafted the United States Constitution, there were terms, but no term limits. This approach is consistent with the general concept of self-governance, for how are we free to govern ourselves if we cannot elect the officials of our choosing? Of course, the hope in the ultimately drafted document was, I think it would be too far given what the founders knew of human nature to say it was a presumption, but the hope was that men of integrity would likely appeal to voters, and such men would not make public service a lifelong career in which they held office essentially in perpetuity. Of course, that landscape has changed. For 150 years, there was no legal, constitutional or otherwise, restriction on the number of terms an individual could serve as President of the United States. From George Washington to Harry Truman, abiding by a tradition begun by Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who both served two terms and no more, President simply didn't serve but one or two terms. In the case of George Washington, he indicated he had not set in stone a belief that a president should or could not serve more than two terms, but and that he would have served longer if he believed he could benefit the new republic by doing so. But he thought he had done all he could do. Jefferson actually did believe that two terms was enough, no matter the man and no matter the state of affairs. From that time forward, it was the norm for presidents to serve no more than two terms. But in the early 20th century, that tradition would be turned on its head, the third and fourth election wins of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR died in office at the start of what would have been his fourth term, but during his time in office, he had caused so much upheaval politically that the stage was set to consider whether it was even good for the nation to allow one man to hold that much power for that long. It did not help that FDR's failing health, in a lot of ways comparable to the deterioration of our present officeholder, made him unable to work as many hours or do as much as he moved on in his time as president, and there was a lot of concern, concern that he would not survive his last term, which turned out to be legitimate. Concern was also increasing that serving in the position that long was leading the country down a path of presidential tyranny. As a side note, it is interesting to consider the various arrangements our founders debated in deciding how the president would be selected and how long he would serve with the likes of men 
like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, at least at one point in the debate, supporting possible lifetime appointment for the position, much like today's Supreme Court justices. In the end, however, a delicate and incredible balance was created in which individual citizens had an indirect role in electing the president to a four-year term. But after FDR's long run, the 22nd Amendment, which was finally ratified in 1951, limited the president's time in office to two terms. In relevant part, that amendment reads as follows. No person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president when this article was proposed by Congress, and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president or acting as president during the remainder of such term. There was indeed debate about term limits at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. During those debates, there were essentially two positions. One, championed by the pro-stronger federal government Federalists, was that more power being sought for the president should include longer terms in office. And two, the anti-Federalists, with a general suspicion of an overly strong centralized government, wanting more limited authority for the president to include less time in which an individual could hold that office. At the outset, many seeking to limit the power of this office looked to the common situation in the states that provided their executives, their governors, just terms of one or two years. But none strongly advanced this short of a term for what would be the new president or the president of the new nation, as there was some consensus that the new nation's stability might suffer from an ever-changing executive. From the three-years to seven-year terms, discussion was had as to how long the president would serve. And at one point, there was agreement on a single seven-year term. But when the delegates again returned to this topic, after having hashed out more of the details on how the president would be elected, a four-year term was agreed upon. But not before a lot of back and forth on term length, election method, term limits, and more shifted the views of the delegates over time to what would be the final parameters. So it was not so much the duration of the term, but whether a president was eligible to seek more than one that split some of the delegates. Having just freed themselves from a lifetime monarch and overly controlling colonial governors, the delegates did have some concern over the ability for an individual to seek the office over and over. Nonetheless, the fears of an all-too-powerful chief executive ultimately were calmed, not by limiting the number of terms, but by the unique way in which it was decided the president would be elected. Rejecting proposals for election or lifetime appointment by Congress, the ability for citizens to per- citizen participation without direct and total citizen control, led to creation of the electoral, electoral College, which it was believed would act, in concert with the limited federal government being constructed, to restrict the president's power, such that including term limits was no longer necessary. The demonstration by FDR that the system the founders created might now suitably restrict that power in the modern era resulted in the 22nd Amendment. In other words, though it might have been the intent that by having less direct citizen participation in the election of the president, that the right men would be chosen and that they would not become tyrannical in office, following FDR, the concerns of a tyrannical presidency arose once again, and the 22nd Amendment restricted the presidential terms to two. (laughs) 
The second half of the 20th century found us focused more on whether the change in the government that resulted from presidential term limits justified limiting other officials, such as senators and representatives, to a set number of terms as well. In large part, the argument boiled down to the fact that the framers created checks and balances among the branches. But with term limits now only imposed on one of the political branches, that tipped the delicate balance unacceptably. That is an attractive argument, and it is made even more attractive by the number of congressional members who make a nearly lifelong career out of holding office, and do so well past their prime in terms of age. But what really are the arguments for and against term limits for Congress, and is there merit in imposing such limits only on one chamber of that body or on them both? From the outset, particularly as applies to members of the House of Representatives, the only body in the original Constitution elected directly by the people, it does appear to run counter to freedom and self-governance not to allow the electorate to choose the candidate that most appeals to them, regardless whether that individual has already held the office and for how long. Now that the Senate is also directly elected by the people, since ratification of the 17th Amendment in 1913, the same argument could apply to that body as well. So let's identify some of the pros and cons of imposing term limits on Congress. Aside from the most attractive one for me, which is to get rid of the people who've been there forever and start over. Some pros. Our elected officials might develop backbones and not be afraid to make hard decisions for fear of losing their positions. And what about the corruption that comes from seniority and time in D.C., which might be reduced if less time could be spent there? And pork spending could be reduced as an elected official will not look to fund pet projects to stay in office year after year after year if his time there is already limited. And then the voting public may become more invested as new people with new ideas participate in the political system. Those who serve would more likely come from or return to other professions, providing them real-world experience and experience with how the laws they pass in Washington actually affect their constituents. And what about the arguments against such limits? The cons. There are some good officials who do good work, and they would have only a limited time to make progress, and might be forced to leave even if the district or state from which they were elected offered no better candidates. Agenda items for those set on implementing change may be more hurried through the legislative process in hopes of accomplishing something while there, and on the flip side, those with big ideas and big agendas may never have enough time to take steps toward those goals. That might be a good thing, it might be a bad thing, depending on the goals intended. As mentioned, voters would not have free choice if they wanted to re-elect the incumbent, but that politician had already served the maximum number of terms. And with all the issues dealt with, rightfully or wrongfully, Washington, D.C. today, very few congressional members would arrive there in their first term with the expertise and knowledge about all the issues upon which they will be called, to de- called upon to decide. Whether you believe the pros outweigh the cons, or vice versa, a lot, a lot more would change if term limits were imposed than merely getting rid of career politicians, something I actually do support in all parts of government. But another consideration is what happens at this point, not when the nation was founded, not even in its first 100 to 150 years, but today, where the largesse of the federal bureaucracy has already run amok and places in the hands of unelected employees more power than even most of our elected officials, what happens if those elected officials now cannot stay long enough even to try to dismantle that system, then we really could be taking the power from the people and handing it over to wholly unelected bureaucracies. 
I still like the concept of term limits, but only as a small part of a much larger and much more challenging agenda to reduce the size of every aspect of our federal government. Today's debate about term limits is not just about whether we now should impose on Congress what was imposed last century on the president, but whether the Supreme Court justices, who now have lifetime appointments, should have set terms. So let's explore term limits in that scenario as well. Before discussing the recent push to consider term limits for our Supreme Court jurists, let's discuss why they were given lifetime tenure in the first place. The intent was clear in not subjecting these judicial officials either to election or to set terms, and that intent was to insulate them from politics. Where once appointed, a justice does not have to be concerned with keeping his job when rendering decisions, judges are then free to decide cases as they deem them to be correctly decided under the law. No doubt, modern discussion always seems to assume these justices are acting with political concerns and intent, or to affect a certain political agenda, and some may be. But the fact remains that if they had to run for re-election every four, seven, or ten years, they most certainly would have at least in the back of their minds how any given decision might alter their chances of re-election. The same would be true if they were appointed for a single term. For what are they positioning themselves for but the next job after their time is up? To create a judiciary that was independent of the political branches and not swayed by the ever-shifting political breezes of society, providing for an appointment process for life was the framer's answer. Once confirmed, the justice owes no one in order to keep his seat. This arrangement sets us apart from many other nations and from how the states generally handle their judicial offices. As in most of these other circumstances, judicial officers have term limits or mandatory retirement ages, and may be either appointed by other officials or elected by the general public. The other aspect of lifetime tenure that is critical to understand is that it avoids one president from being able, due to expiring terms, to stack the court in his favor to push through his agenda in the short term, and then allowing his successor to do the same, creating a world of instability in U.S. policy. Yes, terms could be staggered to try to address this issue, but it would not be a total solution. Of course, the counter to this concern is that with today's lifetime appointments, a single president can actually affect the court for years or decades to come. To change the current system would require a constitutional amendment, and there are those pushing for just that action. In a white paper written for the Center for American Progress, and prominently now displayed on the White House website, the author argues that there is a need for term limits for our Supreme Court justices. The primary basis on which the argument sits for such limits is that the lifespan of the average American today far exceeds that of the time of our founding. And as such, those who are appointed relatively young now sit in a position of isolation from normal life. Of course, assuming these men and women do not have normal lives, for decades and decades, where originally they may have only had this kind of political insulation for 10 or 20 years before they died. It is for this reason that even some of the very jurists who hold positions on our highest court have seemed to suggest a change would not be objectionable. Former Justice Stephen Breyer in 2016, several years before his 2022 retirement, stated, I do think that if these were a long term, I don't know, 18, 20 years, something like that, and it was fixed, I would say that is fine. In fact, it'd make my life a lot simpler to tell you the truth. Of course, he's referring to the one time that political pressure is clearly placed on this individual and that is in each political side's trying to push the timing of the resignation of a particular justice to try to determine and control who gets to fill that seat. 
Before becoming Chief Justice, John Roberts had this to say about the tenure of justices. The framers adopted life tenure at a time when people simply did not live as long as they do now. A judge insulated from the normal currents of life for 25 or 30 years was a rarity then, but is becoming commonplace today. Setting a term of, say, 15 years would ensure that federal judges would not lose all touch with reality through decades of ivory tower existence. It would also provide a more regular and greater degree of turnover among the judges. Both developments developments would, in my view, be healthy ones. Of course, John Roberts said that in 1983, before he himself was a member of the federal judiciary. But what I have seen missing from this particular debate is what the country suffers by going through the growingly political confirmation process more times, not fewer. Sure, the fight is often so virulent because we are talking about lifetime appointments, but do we really think those politically active on this issue would be much less invested if the tenure was 15 or 25 years? I do not believe or trust in the position that terms would remove some or even any of the politics from the appointment process. In addition, concerns would still exist as to what influences may then come into a judge's decision-making. Is it to win favor with someone who may offer him or her a job after the tenure with the court? Is it to better his or her financial condition upon leaving? It is true that a set term with no eligibility for a second does remove some of the political influence the founders sought to remove from these officials by lifetime tenure, but it does not remove it all. It also would seem to encourage either appointment of older jurists, which may or may not be in the country's interests, or risking the appointment of younger jurists, knowing that they will likely have to position themselves at the end of their term for some next step in their careers. It seems to me that for the highest court, lifetime appointment, and for the federal judiciary as a whole, lifetime appointment, was chosen by the framers for a clear reason, and that is so that once there, our judges, at least presumably, and to the greatest extent possible when de- with dealing with human beings, will decide the cases before them based on the facts and the law. So what does all this mean for the future of additional term limits? First, the chance that term limits will actually come to fruition for members of Congress is, at least right now, highly unlikely. The change, like the change for president and any change to the Supreme Court, would require a constitutional amendment. The only ways to amend the Constitution are either for a two-thirds vote in both chambers of Congress to approve and then send the amendment to the states for ratification, or for two-thirds of the state legislatures to call for a constitutional convention. These supermajority actions have slimmed to no chance of happening in our current circumstances where politics is so evenly divided. So while the talk about term limits, dissatisfaction with government likely, and polling has regularly shown that often as many as 80% of voters, regardless of party, claim to support term limits for Congress. But the next question must be, then why are so many members of Congress regularly re-elected by this same electorate? It can only be because these same individuals who are for term limits in theory are still willing to vote for their representative or senator for multiple terms. Sure, it may also be because without term limits, the incumbents have a distinct advantage in the election cycle that lessens the chances of someone from their own party challenging them or from an opponent from the other party unseating them. If the incumbent has an advantage, from everything from name recognition to fundraising skills to just political know-how, and can maintain his or her party nomination, then who wins that particular seat may come down more to whether the voters lean more toward the incumbent's party or the opposing political party, not on whether the voter, if he or she had a choice, would pick that particular candidate. 
Nonetheless, until voters are willing to step up and find new blood and insist that incumbents not live in office, it is highly unlikely that those who in fact are making their living that way are going to support a limit on that lifestyle. Term limits is likely a good idea in in theory. Under the right circumstances, maybe even in practice. The real problem is that unless and until other parts of the system are reformed, if they ever are, term limits are both unlikely, and if by some miracle they were imposed, they may actually tip the balance in unexpected ways, giving us different but no better problems. It's also possible term limits would cure a lot of political ills, but that is speculative at best, especially in the face of such a large and powerful nation with so many thousands of people having their hands in a part of its operation. At this point, I still favor term limits for Congress, but want attention focused elsewhere first. Let's really try to fix the monstrosity that is our federal government. Let's get our budget in order. Let's ensure we're insisting our federal government focus first and foremost on our nation's security and less on our daily domestic lives. And then, if we can shift any notable power back to the states and streamline any parts of the machine that are now so engorged that corruption is almost a given, then let's talk about what public service really means. Stepping away from your other contributions to society, your family and your community through your work, to serve a greater good on a temporary basis. As always, thank you for listening. I do believe the imposition of term limits on the president altered the ingenious balance our framers created. But I also believe that the fears of a weaker president as a result of term limits have not come to fruition. And in fact, the opposite appears to be more of a problem an office that has usurped more power in the 21st century than could have been contemplated by the likes of Washington or Madison or Hamilton or Jefferson. We hear outcries of a broken Congress, but also of a tyrannical president. And wasn't that what term limits were intended to avoid? If they couldn't do it for a single office holder, can they do it for 535? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that politics should not be a career. It should be a step away from your career and daily life to offer service to your community for a temporary time period. How we get back to that idea is less clear. Alexis de Tocqueville knew that America was something special, but he also saw the risks in any system relying on men. He saw the risk of tyranny in what he saw as inadequate protections against it. Maybe he would have seen term limits as a step toward such protection. Maybe not. But he did see some risk when he wrote the following. The main evil of the present democratic institutions of the United States does not raise, as is often asserted in Europe, from their weakness, but from their irresistible strength. I am not so much alarmed at the excessive liberty which reigns in that country as at the inadequate securities which one finds there against tyranny. Next episode, I will discuss, in the light of the death of Dianne Feinstein, how extreme politics has become, in the United States as elsewhere, the norm where once I rolled my eyes and moaned about the positions of those like Senator Feinstein, and where I criticized their policies as misguided. I did not have a sense they held disdain for their country or its exceptionalism, but rather that they simply saw a different image of at least something that resembled America as the goal. One could argue to some degree correctly that the steps of Feinstein's Democratic Party always intended the extremism we're seeing today. But it is clear that if some in her ranks and in her time were striving to undo America's foundations— Many of those in her, in her group and of her colleagues were unwitting participants in that mission. So as those of her era pass, 
those who still held a reasonable belief, for example, that women and men are different, as that generation passes, what are we left with in terms of the norms and extremes of politics? Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further its entire purpose, to encourage real and civil discourse in society about the state of our nation. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to the podcast page on Spotify and clicking the Support This Podcast button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2023.